Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, where we plant and nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a food patriot to the natural world, and a person wondering, really, more snow um, behind the glasses, Hunter. Hi, Hunter. Hello. Now, we're taping this on Thursday, but they're saying that we may get more snow. <laughs> I, how is it even possible anymore? <laughs> One of my friends put a sign out in their yard, free snow. <laughs> it was and, cute. Uh, it's going to be a... Uh, a very flooded spring when this all warms up. You know, and it's all connected to climate change and connected to food. And we have a really um, good show on on those two topics. We're gonna be we're very pleased that the uh, president of the Minnesota Farmers Union, Gary Wordish, is going to join us. Pardon, hi, hi, Gary. Morning, Laura. Good morning, and so welcome. You're the president of the Minnesota Farmers Union, and uh, you just got back from a uh, conference, or actually, you're still in that area, the National Farmers Union Conference. So, tell us what goes on at the National Farmers Union Conference. Well, basically, it's our national convention where all the states, all the farmers union states, come together, and it, it, I'll step back. It goes back to each individual state. You know, we do it in Minnesota. You have county conventions, you pass resolutions, they get forwarded to the state convention, and whatever passes the state convention, then we do the same thing at national. So the, at national, all the states come together with delegates and vote on the resolutions that come from all the various states throughout throughout our membership, and that's uh, our policy that we uh, lobby for at the state, at the national level. And you've been doing this for 117 years. Yeah, we have. We've been around a long time. Started in 1902. 1902. So let's talk about, um, the. There, is there a farm crisis right now in America? Well, there definitely is. There's no doubt about that. You know, we're, we're, an, extent, we're an extended period now, over five years of low commodity prices. And, uh, you know, the net in, or the income on the farm is down again, well over 50%. 50% so, you know, as interest rates start to rise uh, and the huge amount of capital that's required now, we're, we're definitely in a farm crisis. Yeah, I know. And you're kind of in a noisy place, but net farm income down 50%. The projected medium income for farmers is losing $1,500 a year. That is heart-wrenching. What well, is? And that's, you know, that's, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's just part of the story. And you get all that, you get your family living and all that come that you're supposed to take out of that so it, it is really it's really a challenging time right now and you know we don't get out of it until we get some better prices on the you know for our commodities and that's that's really what is uh, driving it is just the low low prices of the farmers that are receiving for their commodities whether it's crops or even livestock it's just dairy especially is you know the same thing that dairy farmers are seeing a mass exodus of dairy farmers uh, throughout the country you know wisconsin's in minnesota we've seen it in wisconsin as you know the number one dairy state and they've really dropped dramatically in numbers and um, so are so are we in minnesota yeah so the number of dairy farmers in the united states has dropped more than 30 percent in the last 10 years and the farmers pay they the the average price paid to dairy farmers is 15 dollars and 80 cents per hundredweight and the average cost of production is 22 dollars per seven 22 dollars per hundredweight yeah, that's probably, you know, the average is, you know, you'll have some people that are higher than lower than that, but it's it, it's pretty much that's across the board. That's uh, very, you know, you're you're producing a very nutritious product for the consumer at a loss, and, you know, you can't do that. You can only do that so long, and, and that's why we're having an exodus, because as it's eating into their equity, you know, they're running, some are running out of equity, and some are just playing, uh, saying the equity, they've done this long enough, and, uh, you know, you got you got to be able to survive, and uh, with the low prices, unfortunately, a lot of them won't be aren't are not able to survive. Well, I want to thank American farmers because I really like to eat, and I really like my children eating. And so, how do I act in reciprocity with the farmers? How do I help make a shift? Well, I think one thing that the guy, you know, the local consumer can do is that does it make a difference is buy local because that there if you can buy a local direct from a farmer, whether it's a uh, livestock or vegetables there that is probably the easiest thing that you can do to help support uh, you know that goes directly to a farmer you know we're we're in this you know, mass ex or surplus of commodities throughout the world and, and and you know we're in a global economy so that's part of the you know that that's you know in some ways it's good but that's there's uh if you just look at our great our commodities like grain and soybeans and those those crops you know we're in a world surplus of uh of global supplies so that's what's putting pressure on the prices so but 
you know, to, to be able to help a local farmer would, you know, buy in local would, would have an immediate effect, or you can help them keep a fold, keep, you know, support their family farm. Later in the program, we're going to be talking with Chris Gamer from the Main Street Project, and they're um, unveiling on Saturday, March 9th, a campaign to plant one million hazelnut trees so that um, hazelnuts um, are great for climate change, also to try to create um, new types of products to kind of move out of the soy and corn bean monocultures and finding um, agroforestry or other types of farming. And, and But also the other side of this, though, is they want to support farmers in this transition, not just expect them to do it by themselves. Yeah, that, that's the thing. You know, the more diversification we can have, it just helps everybody. But, but, but that is that is the problem. You know, you have to. You know, farmers, you just can't automatically switch to something else. You know, and and then like the hazelnuts, it's gonna. You know, you're not gonna plant them one year and start harvesting the same year. So, you know, it's a challenge moving into other, uh, into more diversification. The farmers. You know, they have to be paid to be able to do that. And I think everybody supports family farmers, but, you know, they don't, a lot of people don't realize the amount of capital required and uh, that the low prices we're getting, that the challenges that, that are, that the family farmer does face. Right, and the low price of the farmer share for the food, and like um, on the National Farmers Union website, uh, on a loaf of bread which sells for $3.49, the farmer's share is only 12 cents. Yeah, that's, that's the unfortunate thing, you know, it, you know, there's a lot of a lot of costs in between there that the farmers aren't uh, getting any benefit out of. You know, and it's, somebody's, you know, there's you, there's a lot of legitimate costs. We no doubt about that. But the farmer's just not getting a fair price for his uh, production. And would you? Um, so has the trade disruptions added to the problems and the stress of farmers right now? Well, de- yeah, it definitely has. You know, and, and I think. And Farmers Union, we, we agreed with the administration at the start of this that, you know, we need to look at trade agreements and especially China. They're probably not, you know, not, they are not playing by the rules, but we, we, we disagree with how, with the approach he's taken and, uh, the length of time. You know, we're, we're causing, we're, we're causing long-term damage here and uh, you just take for the price of soybeans. You know, the price of soybeans went down 20 to 25% when, um, when the trade wars, when he imp- implemented the tariffs and the trade wars. You know, that's an, it just need, it needs to get resolved. Uh, we encourage them to get it done sooner than later because uh, we're, we're, we're doing damage and we're losing the, you know, we probably will never get that market. The China market, we're so heavily dependent on that. So we probably will never get that market completely back. And, uh, you know, what are the price structure we, as we go forward? You know, last year, some farmers had some of their crop you know, pre, you know, marketed ahead of time. So they were able to lock in a little bit better price with, with the trade disruption now that you know locking in a good price is not not available for the farmer raising this coming crop in the following years at at the present time it's complete i i want to talk about climate change um what's the connection between farming and climate well that's where we feel that farmers can play a role in this uh, you know the climate change it's an interesting because even as you uh discuss it amongst farmers there's you know a lot of farmers they're not willing to uh to uh, acknowledge that there is climate change, but or that it's man-made, but they are the vast majority are willing to say that the climate is changing, the weather patterns are changing. So, I think you know that and that's where the role where the farmer can play an important role in helping solve this. You know, whether you know sequestering some uh, carbon in the soil so that through our farming practices we can we can uh, we can you know help solve this issue. And I, you know, farmers just need to be at the front of the discussion on how we get there rather than uh, being told exactly what we have to do you know if, if we you know if we can be at the table helping develop policies you know we'll be in a much stronger position and, and uh, we can we can benefit the, you know the climate yeah that that having agency is just fundamental to our freedom we want to be able to have some sense of agency um, some sense of um, being able to make our own choices as individuals and as business owners and and when it comes to climate change I was surprised do some farmers feel like there's blaming and shaming because collectively we are starting to put more focus on the food system as a leading driver of climate change do people feel like they're blamed instead of the system being blamed. Well, I think, yeah, I think to some extent there are, you know, and it, and you know, there's not enough, you know, the farmers that are pretty much being blamed right now for a lot of it. You know, whether you uh, whether you there are some are some are be blaming agriculture, but 
really, we got to be looking at the fossil fuel industry. That's a lot of it, you know, and that's all where Mazzini and Revoy supported. You know, if we can move to more renewable energy, that we can uh, start using less fossil fuel, which is probably one of the bigger biggest drivers of uh, of our greenhouse gas. Which, uh, so you know, but the farmers right now, it's kind of an easy target to pick on, and you know that. And we, as we change our practices, we keep doing things better. There's no no doubt about that. But you know, just to just to say we got to get rid of animals throughout the world, that, that that's going to solve our problems. That's not it, because that creates a whole lot of other problems about uh, food density and and, and uh, proper nutrition for families, especially in some of the third world countries. They, I've done some work with some of those countries and uh, talking to people. If you remove the livestock from some of them people's diets, like the children and the elderly and the pregnant you know, mothers, they would uh, seriously suffer nutrition uh, uh, deficiencies, which is not helpful. Yeah, how do we move um, to where we? Because a, a, a lot of people think you you need to have the animals on the farm to sequester carbon, and and sequestering carbon is is a, a key way for us to combat climate change, um, and also with the most snow ever in February that we've ever experienced, and now more snow coming. That's really hard for farmers to deal with that much snow. Roofs are collapsing. Well, it is, and you know, not right now. We got enough stress on the farmers uh, with just with the low prices, and now you're looking at the heavy amounts of snowfall. What type of a spring are we going to have? That we're going to create, you know, a lot of flooding conditions with the excessive snow. So it, there's a lot of a lot of issues here. That uh, you know, it, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. We're talking with the president of the Minnesota Farmers Union, Gary Wordish. <laughs> The fine folks at Common Good Books will help you find the perfect book for you or the book lover in your life. Find a huge selection from a locally owned and independent bookseller in the Twin Cities. They are always bringing in top authors from around the globe for special in-store events. Open Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. and Sundays, 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. Find Common Good Books at 38 South Snelling Avenue in St. Paul or shop online at commongoodbooks.com. I'm Candy Braffel, publisher of the Twin Cities edition of Natural Awakenings Magazine and host of Green Tea Conversations, a new show for people who are on a journey to take responsibility for their health and play a more active role in their family's well-being. Join me every Sunday at 10 a.m. as I interview local experts who share the latest in natural holistic approaches in a fun and informative way. So grab a cup of tea and join the conversation as we awaken to natural health. Visit us at naturaltwincities.com. Hi, it's Tom Hartman. You know, Continental Diamond is special for a lot of reasons. The owners are Jimmy and Helene Pessis, a husband and wife team who had a dream to open their own store more than 30 years ago. They built a business that is the gold standard. The readers of Minnesota Bride Magazine have named Continental Diamond the best jeweler for the last seven years. Why? Amazing, friendly, no-pressure customer service, a selection of fine diamonds and design jewelry unlike anywhere else, and the fresh-baked chocolate chip cookies are pretty great, too. Continental Diamond in St. Louis Park and at ContinentalDiamond.com. Hi, this is Mike Papantonio from Ring of Fire. Ring of Fire is a direct, smart, and I got to promise you, a fearless progressive talk show. Join me, Mike Papantonio, and my co-host Bobby Kennedy Jr. and Sam Cedar as we take on the large corporate conglomerates and that radical right-wing media that dominate America's airwaves. Ring of Fire, Saturdays from 3 to 6 and Sundays from 6 to 9 p.m. on AM 950. It is the progressive voice of Minnesota. I'm Nick Slavic, proprietor of the Nick Slavic Painting and Restoration Company. I speak nationally and internationally on the subjects of entrepreneurship, trades reform, apprenticeship, craftsmanship, and coding science. I've created a rigorous apprenticeship program where I find, train, inspire, and mentor young people in my craft. The result is an ultra-professional crew of craftspeople that cares about their work and your project. We're not like other contractors. Visit N-I-C-K-S-L-A-V-I-K.com. That's NickSlavic.com to learn more. Hello, fellow AM950 listeners. This is Jason from Nightingale at 26 in Lindale. Come experience our delicious signature dishes and exciting rotation of inventive seasonal fare for my wife and chef, Carrie, and her team. Nightingale is the perfect place to gather for any occasion with our extensive wine, beer, and cocktail selection, along with our dedication to great service. We offer a full menu every day from 4 to 1 a.m., two award-winning daily happy hours, and weekend brunch at 10. More at nightingalempls.com.
When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me. Welcome back to uh, Food Freedom Radio, where we plant to nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, and on the phone with us is the president of the Minnesota Farmers Union, Gary Wordish. Gary, when we went on break, um, this weather, and I, I've been hearing stories about roofs collapsing, and I can only imagine, I mean, I just want to stay inside, um, how hard it is for people who have to get out there and take care of their shores, take care of their animals, and the potential for flooding right now. So. Yep. It's uh, definitely a lot of a lot of concern. And you mentioned roof collapses. We had uh, approximately twenty barns that went down in Minnesota, and maybe more that I'm aware of that I'm not aware of. But uh, especially a livestock run. If you know, if you're a livestock farmer, you, your barn goes on goes down, and you not only lose, probably lose some animals, but you got to then you got to find another place for those animals. And a lot of times that that creates a lot of real hardship. You know, finding someplace else that is available. I, I saw the one report that the one dairy farmer in the southeast Minnesota just. Uh, just decided to liquidate their animals to get out of dairy. And part of that, you know, the barn collapsing on them just helped drive them to that decision. So um, the National Farmers Union meeting was this last week, um, the 117th, and you passed eight resolutions, the group did, and it's about trying to find solutions to the farm crisis. Uh, do you want to talk about some of those resolutions? Well, the one we talked about a little bit about is the climate change. We, You know, we... We passed a special order that farmers need can can play a role in this and need to be helped help work on that as you go forward. And basically, like we talked about earlier, just be at the table. Another one is renewable energy. We we passed the resolution on e on ethanol to to move towards advanced uh, advanced biofuels or advanced uh, like E30 versus right now we have a in Minnesota we have an E10 mandate mandate which the administration is in the EPA are going to be hopefully moving that up to an E15, but we're, we're advancing even higher blends than that because it's, it not only provides a market for farmers, but it actually helps, uh, helps a consumer by lessening our dependence on foreign fuels, by having some more homegrown uh, energy. That and uh, there was, and the the well, phrase the phrase bioeconomy and and creating I mean um, uh, we need uh, like sometimes people say well, the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine but there's always biofuels <laughs> so biofuels can well, they, play a really important um, role. Well, they can, and that's why we just need to have a you know we, we need to have parts all of it you know and then the biofuels can definitely play a big role and. Uh, yeah, the wind and the sun, you know, the solar and wind power, there's definitely a role for that, too. And that, as you keep moving forward in technology, that, you know, that can can play a bigger role, too. The more diversification we can have, the better off we all are. And, and a lot of it, you know, back to the biofuels or, the, you know, like uh, fossil fuels, we, the more we can produce on our own, the less we have to import from uh, countries that don't really like us. And, you know, we don't, and, uh, you know, as, as it's been said a number of times, you know, we haven't had... Uh, they haven't had to put the military in, in standing in guard of a cornfield. Mm-hmm. So there was a climate change resolution. Um, also, I found the, um, a resolution on labeling of meat. You don't want uh, non-plant. Uh, tell, tell us about the labeling of the meat. Truth and labeling. Farmers Union, we've always been in support of, of labeling. And uh, right now you're having the true culture. You're having what a cell cultured lab meat which or fake meat you can refer to it, but you know uh, a similar product to meat that's being managed being raised in a laboratory and you know i guess our you know we go back to if, if there's a certain amount of population that wants to buy that that's fine but you know we, we just want correct labeling in the store so we don't so the, the consumer actually knows what they're buying and that we think if they're if they're known, they're you know the ones that want to buy it out of a laboratory. Well, let you know they have that choice. But uh, we we'd like our farmers to be able to the meat and uh, beef and poultry and pork and the various meat products that we raise on the farm actually raise and take care of the animals on the farm. We just want to leave it labeled properly to give the consumer a choice. And that goes back to we've always supported country original labeling too. And this is another another good reason that most people would, you know, they want to support the family farmer. And, you know, if they have a choice of buying a product in the store that, that they know is, raised, know is raised by an American farmer versus another, you know, from another country where the where the standards maybe aren't uh, as good as what we have here. So we, you know, we just think it's important for the consumer to have a choice. 
Yeah. And so um, the other uh, resolution was on a farm safety net, family farming and the farm safety net. Yeah, that's the one thing, you know, the farm, the farm, or the present farm bill that we just got passed, it, it is a help, but there's still going to be with the low prices, it's still not going to be adequate protection on the, on the, of a safety net. So we, we would, you know, we're definitely encouraging Congress to take another look at that. And, you know, maybe there's some other programs because they're, with the low prices, there's going to be some farmers are going to have a hard time cash flowing. And, and it's not that they're bad farmers. It's just that with the low, low continued years of low prices, you know, they're running out of equity. And, then, you know, you can only, you can only, you just, at some point, you just can't survive and you can't make it. And, and that just leads to more consolidation of farms, which, you know, in the end doesn't do anybody any good. We, the more farms we have out there, the better it is for the rural communities and for the overall economy. Right, right. And so talk a little bit about some of the mental health issues in the uh, Farm and Ranch Stress Assistant Network. Well, a farmer, you know, he's, he's real, you're very proud of, you know, of your profession. And it's hard to admit that you're struggling and having, having a hard time maybe making it go. And in, in the vast majority of time, it's not the farmer's fault. It's due to the low prices and stuff. But it's, you know, you, you don't want to... A lot of them don't want to come forward. They just, you know, they, they'll, they're afraid they'll be viewed as a failure, but they're not. So we, we're definitely putting out more information. The Minnesota Department of Ag has a has a farm stress network uh, helpline that people can call. We're just encouraging people to call, you know, help help anybody they think is struggling to help them through it because it is, you know, it is it is not their fault, and that's uh, well, yeah, so and farmers, <laughs> yeah, farmers are a proud people, and that that's hard to accept sometimes. Well, it's just it's just heart wrenching for me to imagine working so hard at losing money and with the price system. What sits behind the low prices? A lot of it, you know, it's let's just say the crops for an example, or corn and soybeans. Just use those two as an example. We've had through increased technology and in genetics, so we're raising a lot more or bigger crops than we used to in the past. That. And uh, crops that survive uh, adverse conditions, drought or extreme weather conditions, rain, we're just, we're just, and a lot of that comes through increased technology and genetics that we are raising. The crops we are raising, we're getting more bush, more yield out of them, and, and they can survive the adverse conditions. In the past, a lot of times, we, if uh, a certain part of the country or, or another country would have a crop failure, you know, if you provided that would lead to a spike in your prices because it would it would lessen the the supply that's on hand. But now we're through the increased genetics. We're 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 just doing so. In some in some respects, you know, we're kind of it's kind of a catch twenty two, and that's where the farmer is now. He needs to produce as much as he can just to try and cash flow. But then all of that all of the production right now, we just have a glut in production. So it's so it's uh, like I said, it's a catch twenty two. Because we're able to grow we food just, better, um, and so yeah, and, the, yeah, and we just need to find more demand. We need, we need to find more uses for our products. I know there's there's say corn. There's corn is being made into some plastics and even clothing. We just we just keep need to advance in technology and advancing research and those and those issues. We just try and find, we need to find more uses for our commodities. Innovate. Um, we, thank you. We're getting to take a break. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Tap, taste, and treasure at Vinaigrette, where we have some warm seasonal recipes all ready to create dynamite meals. Our fig balsamic vinegar pairs perfectly with roasted Brussels sprouts or baked brie. And sweet potatoes are always a winner, but never more than when they're roasted with a drizzle of vinaigrette cinnamon or orange-fused extra virgin olive oil on top. Come in today for more custom-crafted food and cocktail recipes at Vinaigrette, 50th and Xerxes in Minneapolis, and 287 Water Street in downtown Excelsior. Online at vinaigrettemn.com. I'm Connie Bure, co-host of Awakened Living Infusion Radio Show. Join Michelle Kitzmiller and I as we focus on all aspects of health, wellness, spirituality, and growth from a mind, body, spirit, emotion perspective. Join us next Saturday as we explore dreams, what they mean for your life, and where they can take you. Join us for the Awakened Living Infusion Radio Show, Saturdays at 10 a.m. Let us share with you ways to infuse vitality into life. 
art lovers. It's time to celebrate, learn about, and collect local art at the St. Paul Art Crawl, running April 26th to 28th. The Spring St. Paul Art Crawl, presented by the St. Paul Art Collective, is a must-do experience that you will love. Over the weekend, you will have the chance to explore a wide variety of art while touring through local artist studios, lofts, and galleries. Up for purchase will be paintings, photography, pottery, sculpture, fiber arts, and more. The Art Crawl sprawls over 34 locations. Join the Art Crawl and discover outstanding art for your own. And when you buy local art, you're providing to artists so that they may continue to create the art we love. The Metro Transit is supporting the local art community too with free transit passes. Download your pass to ride buses and light rail for free during the Art Crawl. Be sure to get details at stpaulartcrawl.org. That's stpaulartcrawl.org. This is Chad, owner of AM950 here to tell you about Snap Construction. They're experts in roofing, siding, window, and insurance restoration. They have energy-efficient products available for both residential and commercial properties. This spring, when we needed a company to take a look at a problem with our roof, I called the company I knew I could trust, Snap Construction. I've known Ryan, the owner at Snap Construction, for years, so I knew I could trust him. Don't just take my word for it. Check out their reviews online. They are arguably the most well-reviewed exterior contractor online in the metro area. Over the years, Ryan has always said the same thing to me about his work. If we build it, shouldn't we be held accountable for the work indefinitely? He backed that statement up years ago when Snap Construction was a pioneer in offering a lifetime craftsmanship guarantee on all their work. For a free estimate or general questions, call the locally owned company AM950 Trusts Snap Construction at 612-333-SNAP. That's 612-333-SNAP or find them online at snapconstruction.com. They have financing options available. With your AM 950 weather, I'm Hunter Haas. Saturday, chance of showers, cloudy with a high near 63. Sunday, chance of showers, cloudy with a high near 64. And Monday, mostly sunny with a high near 68. This week's Eat Local Minnesota.com restaurant of the week is Hazel's Northeast. They have classically inspired, creatively prepared comfort food. For dinner, enjoy dishes like their Swedish meatballs, pesto chicken, fish and chips, and more. Located at 29th and Johnson in Northeast Minneapolis, find out more at Eat Local Minnesota.com. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plan to nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, and uh, by phone with us is the president of the Minnesota Farmers Union, Gary Wirtish. And uh, Gary, you uh, recently are back from the 117th um, National Farmers Union Conference. Yep, that's correct. We uh, had our National Farmers Union Conference in our convention in Bellevue, Washington this year. And it feels like there is just so much negativity that that and so much struggle. But was there also some upbeat moments at this convention? Were there some? Well, there is. It, it is. I mean, it's always good to talk to farmers from around the country. And, you know, and, you know, in farmers, you know, we're an optimistic person. You know, you have to be because sometimes, you know, as you put the crop in the ground or raise the livestock, you're struggling. But, you know, by nature, we're very optimistic. And, you know, we'll we'll get through this. It's just that... Uh, you know, he gets back to we. You know, we raising food and proud of our work, and that's what you know. It's it's sometimes it's hard to find a positive, but it it you know hope. You know, like I said, we're we're positive people. You have to be to have to be able to take on that kind of risk. Well, and uh, so tell me, the, one of the keynotes was from Andrew Winston. Uh, tell me about um, what he spoke on. It was a very interesting, and he talked about he works with in a global economy of various. Uh, you know, corporate companies and stuff like that. So it, it was it was kind of a in, in, very interesting talk. And he talked about the concentration and stuff and how to get through that. And uh, it's, um, you know, that concentration is not only a problem with agriculture, but it's kind of worldwide. But, you know, how do you, how do you navigate that and how do you uh, get through it, I guess, is what his kind of message was. Yeah, and so on that, here's some um, statistics from the resolution um, on market concentration. The four largest companies control 66% of pork packing, 85% of beef packing, 85% of corn seeds, and 80% of soybean seeds. Uh, the organic and natural food sector also continues to consolidate at a rapid pace. That's, you know, that's what... It's, it's, you know, that's how, that's directly to the farmer. 
in the you know, we have less opportunities or less choices whether you're buying or selling your product and then you know and you can't blame the companies they're being forced in the consolidation too but you know the ultimate our concern is that you know we're left with fewer, fewer choices and at some point are we paying more for the product whether we're buying it or are we selling it for less because of the concentration but you're starting to, you're seeing that you're starting to see that worldwide too and not just in agriculture it's in the other parts of the economies too you got uh the big box store, some of them are struggling because Amazon has kind of taken over and some of that stuff. So it, it's kind of, it, it is an issue throughout the global economy. And it, it is, it is concerning, you know, back to, back to the agriculture, the back in the twenties, the Congress passed the stat packers and stockyards act. Cause the, at that time, the packers, there was like four packers that had the vast majority similar to we have now. And, and Congress broke them up because of the market concentration over right back where they're at. So I, you know, and it's it's not just agriculture. It's really affecting everything, the choices that the every, everyday consumer is being restricted to. Um, uh, yes, um, AM 950, we're owned by a person who only owns one radio station, which is very rare in the media ecosystem. And, and so... Um, um, nature has nature works on diverse models, and yet we've seemed to have is the 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 cultural economic model that's um, dominating and, and taking in a lot of resources is the way of thinking of monocultures. Like I'm going to be number one. I'm going to have everyone have my seeds. I'm going to take all the market share, and I just don't want to choose that. If other people want to choose that, they may. But I. I prefer to be working and to shopping at my local farmer's market and, and going to stores with people I know. And it's almost human scale economics. And I think that human scale economics is more vibrant and it, it allows um, people to all make a living. And so I would love to see the entire economy shift away from uh, the centralized to decentralized models. It, yeah. Cause I mean, there's economies of scale and that's probably how we got there, but then, you know, it, at some point, you know, is it in our, is it in the consumer, or the producer's best interest? And that, that's, you know, that we're concerned about that. The, you know, these small family, family run businesses, you get, you know, some small shops starting, you know, trying, getting started here and there, but it is a struggle for them to be able to make enough living to be actually support their family. And so, it, you know, there, there are certain areas of the country where, you know, that's a vibrant part of the, of the local economies, but but you get like in Minnesota, the rural communities, it's tough to uh, tough for a small business to start because the population is just you know we, we don't have the population base as you do in the metro and the urban in the urban communities. So the one of the resolutions passed, the National Farmers Union urges Congress to mandate a strict rule blocking every merger where the largest four firms would possess more than forty percent of the market share. And that was part of Andrew Winston's comments uh, too, I believe. He when when one uh, or in President Johnson too, when one when one segment of the economy start or come or like say in the meat processing or, or it could be in the big box retail too. When one when it's down to where a segment owns controls more than forty percent of the market, that's when you get that's when you get into the issue that. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily a free market anymore. You know, in whether it's buying or selling, or it's not a. I shouldn't say it's not a competitive market. I guess that's more correct way to say it. Yeah. So, how do we help? Um, how do we help create that diverse competitive market? As consumers, as food producers, as independent company, as a community, uh, through government, through uh, whatever levers we have. How do we? How do we um, become? Well. Well, I, th- I think through the government level, you just, you know, keep in contact with your government officials. But at a local level, I think it goes back to buying local, whether it's buying a local from the farmer or buying local from the small business owner on Main Street. Or, you know, I, I think that that is one way to, to help support those those parts of the economy. Okay, so we've got about six minutes left. What else would you like to tell us about the Minnesota Farmers Union? Well, we're a grassroots organization. We've been around a little, a little over a hundred years now in Minnesota. But uh, basically, you know, we advocate for the family farmer in the rural communities, and that, you know, a lot of that is through grassroots policy. We're at the state level now, working on, on legislature at the state capital, and also at the federal level on the federal issues. 
And I was very pleased you put on a governor's forum. Um, Tim Walls was there, and uh, we did a whole show at Food Freedom Radio about that conference. Um, and it was, it was. I really appreciated being in that room and getting out that quality of information. Um, what were some of what are some of the things you remember from that um, governor's forum? Well, a lot of that is, you know, the reason we do that is just to connect the governor, like in that, in that particular case, the governor got elected, and connect him and give people a chance to talk directly to him. In Minnesota, we, we've been doing for about, this will be the third year now, doing what we call rural, rural voices discussions, where we'll be going around the state, and we'll invite some of the commissioner-level people and, and uh, going around the state holding meetings and letting people talk and getting their, uh, getting their imp- what's affecting them and then take that back to St. Paul and in the federal level, and as you work on policies that uh, hopefully you know can fix some of those issues. One thing I remember, Basically just yeah, giving people a chance to be given comes down to giving people a chance to be heard. Right. One of the uh, things I uh, found that I remember from that conference is the importance of getting the um, uh, the local produce into um, state buying, like uh, at the prisons, serving local foods, um, and in our school system and childcare, really um, institutionalizing and scaling up that local food system and how people can strategize at better ways of doing that. Yeah, that, that's a lot of it. You know, whether it's prison, the schools, the hospitals, there's so you know, there's so much. Uh, you know, it gives you a, a high quality, nutritious food, and also, you know, it gives you a, a high quality, nutritious food, and also, you know, if we can bring that from the local producer, that that definitely goes back into the local economy and uh, keeps more dollars in the local economy, whichever which helps everybody out. And then they can make more money in taxes because you have wealth that flows instead of wealth that goes well, out. You let yeah. wealth flow. Yeah, exactly. If, you know, if the producer is making money, you're going to, you know, you'll pay some taxes, which I guess, uh, you know, I think everybody should be in the mindset that they, they should want to pay some taxes. And then at least they're making some money. Right. Making a profit. And, and, you know, there's a lot of, we've had a lot of conversations about the transactional part. And again, my heart bleeds for a business that keeps losing it. But farming's also a relational business, relational with your, um, it's relational, relational with the land, relational with your family, your, your parents, your, your grandparents uh, and your children um, and, and with each other. It's, it's a, it's a living, it's not, it's not just reduced to some transactional stuff. So it's. No, it is. It, it really is. You walk on, you walk out your door, you're at, you're at work and you look out your window, you're at work. And it just, it just, uh, you know, that's, it's that family history and just ties to the land and agriculture. It really is really relational. And, uh, it's, uh, once it's in your blood, it's, uh, it's pretty tight. You know, it just, it, it's just a different uh, way of life. I, uh, it just, unless you've experienced it, it's probably hard for some people to understand it, but you're, you're really tied to that land and it's just, uh, Especially if it's you know, especially if it's you know, some land that your forefathers had, and you know you're continuing to farm it. It's uh, it's uh, it's it's really proud to be able to be there, and but it's also a challenge at the same time. You know, hanging on to it, and making it prosper. But it is it is uh, it's more than a way of life. And I, I we say forefathers, but also um, more and more women are getting into farming as well. Oh, there's no doubt about it. I think worldwide, over over fifty percent of the of uh, the farmers are women now. So it, there's no doubt about that. And we see it here in the United States too. But uh, worldwide, it's well over fifty percent are act of uh, farmers are actually women, which is which is a good thing. Yeah, um, and getting communities of color to farm and and underserved groups to farm. Yeah, there's yeah there's there's no doubt about that. You'll see, you know, Minnesota. We got you know the monk community has been quite successful, you know, doing that. And throughout the country, your various areas, it's you know it's a uh, it, it's it's harmonious for everybody. Yeah. So one of the policy things, because there is this deep connection between agriculture, climate change, and being resilient to climate change, and how do we incentivize soil health how do we make doing what's good for the um, environment good for the farmers pocketbooks well i think if we can get back to some kind of a carbon uh, trading or carbon sequestration market that you know the farmers can get paid for some certain practices that that would help you know it you know it help not only help the farmer but it would help the sequestering carbon would would help a lot in the greenhouse gases and the climate change yeah, how does that look? What, what's what's involved in that? Well, we had we oh, you know, it's probably ten, twelve years ago. We did have a carbon trading market, and uh, 
and through the, some of the political discussions, it, it went away. But there's a lot of talk about that now. So, we're, you know, we're, Farmers Union in Minnesota, especially in the national, we've been quite involved in hoping that we can move back into that area where the where the farmer gets uh, gets a payment and uh, can get for doing practices and it can help everybody out. So that we're you know we're hoping at some point we can get, we can reestablish those markets. And and I know General Mills and some of the very large food. Uh, you know, companies they're working towards that too. They want to have what they call it more sustainable. So there, I think you know, think the stars seem to be aligning that maybe we're going to get back into that type of thing. I know the, I know our administration pulled out of the Paris Climate Exchange, but uh, you know, you got a number of the states within the United States. The states are taking it on themselves, and a number of the cities are saying too, we're going to do more practices that are friendly and and. Uh, friendly to the environment so well, that's encouraging to see awesome well i thank you so much for your time uh president of the minnesota farmers union gary worsh we're going to take a break and when we're coming back we're going to be talking about the idea of planting one million hazelnut trees one million hazelnuts trees let's do it thank you again gary all right thank you Seward Co-op, serving the community for nearly 45 years, invites you to shop their two convenient locations, both offering the strong commitment to local producers and healthy foods you've come to expect. Seward focuses on locally grown and raised products, fair trade, and environmental sustainability. Shop their selection of meats, artisan cheeses, and house-made baked goods. Find Seward at 2823 East Franklin Avenue or the Friendship Store on 38th Street and 3rd Avenue in Minneapolis. More at seward.coo. This is New Beginnings, hosted by award-winning broadcaster and speaker, Freddie Bell. Freddie, this generation of the baby boomers, people are living longer, so the baby boomers are taking care of elderly parents. Let's talk about your health, and specifically, let's talk about Medicare. Our show features the concerns of America's 78 million baby boomers in employment, finance, health and nutrition, and even entertainment. Catch New Beginnings with Freddie Bell, Saturdays at 11 on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. I'd like to thank over 300,000 Minnesota homeowners for choosing Warner Stellion to be their appliance specialist. Now through April 15th, get our guaranteed lowest price on a KitchenAid or Bosch dishwasher, then save more with trusted free installation. Save hundreds on amazing lawn repairs by Whirlpool, smart refrigerators by Samsung, and beautiful kitchen suites by LG. Save on more brands and get the unmatched services you've come to expect. Through April 15th, during Warner Stellion's Customer Appreciation Sale. Most of us try to be careful about how we eat and the safety of our food. At Total Dog Company, we believe in giving our dogs nutritious, safe food, too. We offer a variety of kibble, canned, and frozen and dehydrated raw foods. We study ingredient lists of every food we sell. We don't sell products that are primarily vegetable protein or that contain generic proteins, byproducts, fillers, or artificial preservatives. Find us in New Hope off of 169 at 9432 36th Avenue North and at TotalDogCompany.com. The fine folks at Common Good Books will help you find the perfect book for you or the book lover in your life. Find a huge selection from a locally owned and independent bookseller in the Twin Cities. They are always bringing in top authors from around the globe for special in-store events. Open Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. and Sundays, 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. Find Common Good Books at 38 South Snelling Avenue in St. Paul or shop online at commongoodbooks.com. Tap, taste, and treasure at Vinaigrette, where we have some warm seasonal recipes all ready to create dynamite meals. Our fig balsamic vinegar pairs perfectly with roasted Brussels sprouts or baked brie. And sweet potatoes are always a winner, but never more than when they're roasted with a drizzle of vinaigrette cinnamon or orange-fused extra virgin olive oil on top. Come in today for more custom-crafted food and cocktail recipes at Vinaigrette, 50th and Xerxes in Minneapolis, and 287 Water Street in downtown Excelsior. Online at vinaigrettemn.com. So welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plant and nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Headland, and I am so thrilled with this next idea. What about planting one million hazelnut trees? Um, so uh, with us to talk about planting one million hazelnut trees is Chris Gamer with the Main Street Project. Hi, Chris. Hi, how are you doing today? Cool. So how do you start planting a million hazelnut trees? Well, first, what I want to talk about is that 
the hazelnut campaign is actually more than just a million hazels. Because where we're at is we want to be able to replace soybeans on the landscape with hazelnuts so that we have a perennial crop out there, keep the soil covered, grow, grow soil carbon, take it out of the atmosphere while creating a good, healthy food. And the soy population covers the whole upper Midwest. So our goal really is to get 13 million hazelnuts out there every year across the upper Midwest. And in order to do that, we really need the help of the consumer. Like the, um, the cost of switching from annual agriculture to perennial agriculture is significant. So what the Million Hazelnut Campaign is doing is asking people that are concerned about these issues to contribute $7. And what that will do is sponsor a seed into the nursery. And then after that rootstock is grown, we'll transplant it out on the land in groups of at least a thousand hazelnuts so that what we're doing is actually developing an industry and not just hobby farms right right and uh yeah so the uh, net farm income for uh, these farmers um has gone down by about half since 2013 um so medium farm income in 2019 in 2018 is estimated to be at a loss of one thousand five hundred and forty eight dollars so we can talk about uh we know that uh, and let's back up because we know that but how does how can farms sequester carbon Basically, the first step is to keep the soil covered. The next step is to keep a living soil in the ground all year round if possible, as much of the year as possible. The third step is to reduce tillage. And another really vital point about soil health is to put an animal back on the land. Until you get the inputs that come out of the back end of an animal back on the soil, the mycelium doesn't take off. That is a key component for the soil health and the soil life. And once you get the mycelium active in the soil, the soil actually takes more carbon out of the atmosphere than the, the plants that you see. Right? So It is, it is beautiful. I mean, just describe, what does mycelium mean to you? Well, mycelium, well, it's like the Internet of plants, basically. It's a little network that lives in the ground and connects all of the plants with each other. When we split off from mycelium in our evolutionary history, what happened is we put our tummies on the inside and they put their tummy and their nerve endings on the outside so they can dissolve what's ever in the environment and feed it to the plants that are asking for it. And in return, the plants give them back carbohydrates that they turn into carbon that stays in the soil. So it's a living reciprocal world. Um, and so how does hazelnuts help this? How well, hazelnuts is a perennial plant. You plant it, it keeps the soil covered and allows for the growth of other plants around it. Other, like, It's a great way to encourage pollinator habitat, too, to have a hazelnut hedgerow. Right. Now, I have hazelnuts in my Egan yard, um, and we planted them uh, maybe four or five years ago. They came from Badger Set, and uh, we got our first hazelnuts last year, and they were fantastic. And so, I mean, when I, when I see these hazelnuts, I'm like, and I see all the monoculture, uh, toxic uh, chemicals on the sterile landscapes. It's like, why doesn't everybody have pollinator-friendly hazelnuts or whatever you, whatever speaks to you? Not that everyone's going to have a hazelnut, but whatever landscape speaks to you. Hazelnuts are a beautiful tree. Yeah, they really are beautiful. I particularly like their colors in the fall. Their fall colors are beautiful. And I really am intrigued by the way that the nuts grow in clusters mm -hmm. I think it's really fun picking them because of how sticky they are <laughs> Yeah, but you know, you can actually. I, I was surprised. I didn't know for sure if this, was, but you can actually pick them and eat them right away. They're they're they taste just like the hazelnuts you get in the store. And now, tell me, at Main Street Project, um, you do something called tree range chickens, not free range, but tree range. So how does that work? Yeah, tree range. Well, that's really. I was amazed to learn these things. It was all research done by Reginald Ameriquin, with when he was at Main Street Project with Main Street Project, and um. The chicken is actually the last living relative of Tyrannosaurus rex. It is a forest animal. 
and it's going to be most comfortable, have a least stressed life. And all of those are factors into creating good, healthy food. If you're eating a stressed animal, you're eating that stress. If you're eating a tree-range chicken that grew up in a habitat with an overstory and access to the light and the ability to run around outside, it's way different even than a, a pastured bird with that big open sky over them, hawks are one of their main predators. If they're in an open pasture and don't have the trees over them, they have that low level of anxiety all the time about, oops, somebody's going to come and get me from the sky. And you can see it in their behavior in the paddocks. Right. So even the free-range chickens, they're, they're, they're stressed because they don't have, they're not under trees. They want to be under trees. And hazelnuts. Yes, they want to be under. And then they will provide fertilizer, natural fertilizer for the hazelnut trees. Well, that's an incredible thing. So the, the UMHDI, Upper Midwest Hazelnut Development Initiative, documented an average yield of about uh, half a pound per tree in their planting. And in a chicken paddock, I was there with Tony when we weighed it out, our best tree produced seven pounds. We were averaging about two, two and a half pounds, but we had a few really good trees that grew between five and seven pounds. And those are the seeds that we're selecting to try and propagate ourselves. That, I mean, it's just, it is so, it's such a lovely image to think of small, diverse farms doing tree range with hazelnuts and other markets we're not even thinking of right now. It just feels more relaxed and, and healthy and vibrant and better for the mycelium and better for each other and better for the climate. But to switch to that regenerative view is going to take a lot of work. It is. And that's what we're up to at Main Street. Well, and I should mention, too, it's not Main Street is my primary partner. But I'm also working with the Savannah Institute, the Upper Midwest Development Initiative. In our outreach to the concerned citizen, I'm working with the Isaac Walton League to do outreach. Um, the Organic Consumers Association is helping us get the word out about this project. It is really a lot of work. And it's, you know, in conventional agriculture, you're talking about barns, confinement barns that hold millions of birds. And our barns were... We have a solarium, and then all of our birds have access to an acre and a half paddock. You got the utopian of barns. You know, I we got to talk again. Uh, Chris Gamer from the Main Street Project. I'm sorry, this is all the time we have. But March 9th, Saturday, March 9th, is the kickoff for this Million Hazelnut campaign. And for more information yep. for that, where should people go? People should go to millionhazelnut.com. Millionhazelnut.com. So thank you yep, for listening. We're on, the, we're on Facebook as the Million Hazelnut Campaign. You can find us there, too. Thank you. Food Freedom Radio, AM 950.